0: Welcome to another episode of the Mind Your Mind podcast. We were lucky to have the chance to interview Sean Evans and Polly O'Byrne, two of the three hosts of the Sex and Suicide podcast. It's a London-based show where the men have candid conversations about things traditionally considered too taboo to talk about, including their personal experiences with addiction, trauma, and mental illness. We chatted with them about fame, stigma, healing, and the ups and downs of creating a successful podcast. Have a listen.
1: This is Holly and Sean from the Sex and Suicide podcast, um, Uncensored, right?
2: Uncensored. It's <laughs> important. Yeah. Yeah, for
1: sure. Um, And so we'll just jump into our first question maybe, but for those who are unfamiliar with your show, um, could you guys introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about the podcast?
3: Sure, absolutely. You you go first. Okay. um, My name is Sean Evans, and um, the reason I started Sex and Suicide is because I am a certified sex coach, and that's sort of something that I learned about over the last couple years of, of my life. Um, and I lost my best friend to suicide uh, about two years ago and that was a huge impact on my life um, and started learning more and more about mental health and uh, and, and coming to terms with, with facing my own mental health issues um, I've been on and off medication since you know my late teens early twenties and finally now um, I've been clean and sober away from alcohol drug use um, including prescription drugs for, for two years now so that's kind of um, uh, it's it's an accomplishment for me. And the reason that the podcast started, um, I started t- touring. Um, I was on the show The Bachelorette um, USA. And from that show, I was able to sort of utilize this, the sex coaching to go on a tour with Spenny from the, sh- the reality show Kenny vs. Spenny and Tony Lee, who does um, X-rated hypnosis and hypnotism shows around colleges and universities. But when I went to these shows, my main role was to really focus on consent and making sure that the students understood what consent meant but in a fun way we it stuck so um, I would give out sex toys and and I want to pepper it with a little bit of mental health so I'd say you know the most important sexual organ is your, is your, is your brain and so if you don't take care of this your sex labs are probably gonna to suffer too and then they're kinda of like uh oh I better take care of myself right and then you give them a sex toy and they laugh and everything as well but after the shows there were students that would come up to me And they'd ask um, all these questions. And I realized at the moment in time, I'm never going to see this person again. And they have no way to get a hold of of me or or anyone else for that matter. And that's how the podcast was kind of created, was a way where people can always reach out, people always know where to find myself and and the other people that I've brought on board, like Polly, who have a passion and want to just help people that are struggling.
2: So that's kind of my background. And Polly has a great story as well. Yeah, I guess for me, I the whole thing, how I got introduced to Sean, I think was a mutual friend and we maybe sent like one message back and forth and then I don't know how it, you know, maybe I, we were just following each other on Facebook and we said, let's like grab a coffee one time and. Well, you shared your story. They, be on the podcast. I, I, yeah, no, I was on the podcast. Yeah. And, and then we were like, Hey, let's do this thing every Sunday night. I was like, cool. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm just crazy about, I'm, you know, I'm crazy about this stuff. I, you know, no pun intended, but I, <laughs> I, I'm i nuts about it. I, I, I'm passionate about mental health and, and uh, especially, you know, when it comes to suicide, I'm not only a suicide survivor, but I've lost quite a few friends and I'm a big believer that uh, stigma is the thing that kills people. It's people die from a mental illness and suicide is the means. And I think we really have to, as society, you know, shift that perception that people die from cancer and people die from, you know, complications with diabetes and people die from mental illness and that's normal and that's a normal way of death and we don't have to put so much shame and guilt around that. And I think if we can have some fun and just talk with three normal guys every Sunday night about, you know, our own story and how we're getting through it and we went through this uh, Lucinda Bassett's program, mm-hmm. this uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. And mm-hmm. it's just really, I, I think I, I really enjoy it because it's just three guys with different stories talking about this stuff very raw and uh uncensored you know and I think that's that's me to mm-hmm. t. when I speak I or even when I do interviews I'm like okay don't swear, <laughs> <laughs> don't swear. Don't swear. <laughs> but, you know when we do that I think that you know people are related to that uh-huh. and, and people can identify with that so I'm grateful to be on the podcast and I'm grateful to be you know spreading the message of you know mental wellness yeah. And uh, Paulie actually came
3: up with the Soul Fire Sunday. So that's like the segment. It's Sex and Suicide podcast is um, a, a podcast that we kind of do days of the week. And Sunday is the Soul Fire Sunday where three guys just sit on the couch and openly talk about what's, what's going on in their lives. So we kind of do a quick recap of what's happening in our week. We support one another. We try to explain to, especially to other men that are, that are kind of, um, afraid of, of sharing their feelings and their emotions. We try to prove that it's okay to do that, especially with a big guy like Scott. Yeah. And, uh, and we sit there and, and then we go through some techniques that will potentially help people and um, we're still working on finishing up that program and then the next step is just to, to see where it leads and, and continue. So
4: And speaking of Scott, for the viewers who sure. don't know who we're talking about, could you introduce him a little bit and say how, how you met him, how, you got, how he got involved with? The sure. So
3: Scott uh, Scott Millen is a professional bodybuilder, and he was at one point in time, I believe, the biggest man to ever come out of Canada to compete at something like three hundred and seventy five pounds. Um, and he's been on the podcast. If you want to learn more about Scott, you can. Uh, he can be here today, but you can uh, find his his podcast online under the Sex and Suicide Podcast. And uh, he has quite a story. I mean, he was on his way to. To, to doing great things, and he got into a car accident where no one thought he was ever going to compete again and broke his neck in three places. And he was back on the stage within the next year competing again. Um, he's also been down and, and competed on a um, uh, a television show called Battle Dome where he was named Moose, appropriately. <laughs> and, uh, and and he comes on, so to have this, this massive guy come on and, and talk about things that he's been through and how he, he kind of admits that he openly doesn't know how to identify with anything but bodybuilding so he's kind of trying to find himself and I think his passion is trying to talk to other people that are kind of going through the same thing and and explain to them that it's not all glamorous and kind of the, the downsides of, of what it can do to you and, uh, and I think that's kind of where where he fits as well and um, yeah so you'll see Scott on a lot of the podcasts as well and you can reach out to him as well I know if he was here he'd say reach out and message yeah, me at yeah. the time if you need to talk so okay. yeah
1: um so that's an awesome initiative that you guys have started, and it can be pretty intimidating and it's a big task to start something new. So what's been the hardest part of sort of doing this
3: Not knowing where it'll go and how to kind of approach it like uh, Justin and I met at a meeting talking about uh, establishing nonprofits so it's kind of like, okay do, does this go down a in nonprofit into a nonprofit organization or how do how do we kind of work this to, to be a better system for everyone because we, we constantly throw out this content and and, and want people we, and we encourage people to reach out and share their story and um, we're, we're finally upgrading the podcast to the point where people can Skype in so if they don't live in London and they want to share their story they can Skype call in and still be a part of the show but there's a lot of people that don't want to be a part of the show they just want to talk and that's where the messages come in and they stay confidential and that's where behind the scenes we're kind of that. That's honestly what motivates me the most mm-hmm. is the messages that come in that saying, "Hey, you know, I, I'm I'm reaching out because I'm I'm inspired, or because you guys make it easy, and then we can respond." And 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 Paulie and I will both openly say, you know, we're not mental health professionals. We're just a couple of guys that know a bit about the topic. We've lived it. We've been through it, and and we can relate on probably more than one level. Yeah. Um, and, and the hardest part about the, the whole project has just really been trying to figure out what's next, how to reach more people, and how to still take care of the people that we are trying to help. It's an experience for all of us, and I mean, and relationships that have been built that otherwise might not have been yeah. through the podcast, like Pauly's, like a brother to me, Scott is as well, and everybody else that's come on the podcast and has shared their story and been open and authentic with, with myself or with Pauly. That relationship is just like it's thicker than, than water, right? I mean, it's thicker than anything. That's just superficial level on the surface. So, when you can sit there and people trust you enough to, to talk openly and, and let you share that, it's, a, it's huge. I mean, that's considering someone family to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's
2: so. like the big thing when it comes to even mental health. That like connection's the cure. Yeah. To this, right? Relationships are the cure to you know feeling better, acceptance from people, whether you know they don't want to talk about mental illness or not, like it's active listening, and I think that's what we all do. We all listen to each other's stuff, right? And we're open to that, and I think that that's what like, families should do, and I come from a tough family that didn't do that, so it feels <laughs> almost good that I've built a connection with someone that I can call, you know, my brother. I have a brother that I was born with named Sean. And this, is <laughs> and this isn't him, but uh, this is my brother, right? So I'm like, yeah,
3: a brother named Sean. he <laughs> yeah. yeah, lives
2: in London. Absolutely <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love
3: that. Like that just melts my heart hearing stuff like yeah. that, and it makes mm-hmm. everything worthwhile, right? Whether it's Paulie or someone that we're just meeting, mm-hmm. the connection stays. Yeah, it, it usually sure. sticks. So, mm-hmm.
4: how do you find your guests for your podcast, and how do you choose who to bring on?
3: When I when I first started, um, I would reach out to people that either I knew had gone through something that was that would be an inspirational story, and I had people from um, friends of mine that still go to Western and, and Finch. I said, you know, listen. Listen for anyone that might be struggling, or that maybe has a story that they want to share and get off their chest that could inspire other people. Because after we've d- we've done these podcasts, the the people get scared that you know that there might be some judgment behind it, and people might think, oh wow, you're you're you know and judge them for what they've gone through or the decisions they've made. But more often than not, we see a ton of support come through from people that you don't expect, and it's it's great. Like I encourage people because you know you have no idea the people that you could be inspiring right now. Someone that's. On your Facebook page, you haven't talked to in forever. Might see this, message you right away, and that connection's reestablished. I went through the same thing. I had no idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it's all about. But uh, we're at the point now where, because we have a little bit of um, a following now, people are actually starting to reach out and want to be included, which is awesome. Because eventually, it's nice to have people reaching out to you rather than trying to chase people yeah. and having them not show <laughs> or get nervous last minute. So now we've got it. We're at the point where it's becoming more accepted. I think in the in the beginning the name was a little loud. Like sex and suicide, people kind of go like this, right? But the whole point is to break stigma. That's what it's about. I mean, Paulie and I both know that um, openly talking about suicide is, is something that is, is necessary to break the stigma around it. People are afraid to bring up the the word even because they don't want to put that idea in someone's head. Well, you're not going to put that idea in someone's head. You just want to get them talking. And the same thing with sex. I mean, um, a lot of people, and I talk about this on the podcast, it's really interesting because nine times out of ten, if I give them the option of talking about their sex life or talking about mental health, they gear into mental health right away. <laughs> I'm like, wow, I, I thought it would have been the other way. But it's, yeah. it's great that people are, that are open to discussing what they've gone through. And that's fine. You want to keep your sex life private by all means. It's the people that have kind of gone through sexual assault and sexual abuse that are sharing their stories because they're very powerful. Um, and making sure that everyone understands consent because clearly one of the motivating factors for this was having, you know, a president down in the US that clearly thought that, you know, he could get away with things that shouldn't have been okay. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that we're battling that in some way shape or form as well. So mm-hmm.
1: So you speak a lot about stigma, and obviously um, this impacts everybody, but how did you guys kind of jump into speaking about your own stories, and do you still find that it's difficult sometimes? Like, does it take work to get comfortable and be so open, or do you feel like you're used to it?
2: For me, it's uh, like I've created telling my story as uh, as kind of employment for myself, right? And uh, I've shared my story from Victoria, BC, all the way to Parliament, and I its i can tell you right now, it, it's not easy, it's never easy, it's not once ever been easy to do, but I also know that, uh, at least for me, when I'm an advocate, I know that I'm advocating for someone out there who can't speak, and I think that I learned that from recovery, I think I learned that, you know, there's some people that don't want to talk about it, but they wish that someone would talk about it, and if I can be that kind of vessel in that Lighthouse for them that uh, it might not even be their story. I think at this point. It's not even about my story It's just about identification and I'm grateful that I get opportunities to go around You know Canada and speak about my story again It's never easy and I always you know, I'm super vulnerable afterwards and Sean seen me speak before and I I get vulnerable afterwards Right, and I think all I need is a hug you know. Really ultimately I just like exposed myself to people that I really don't know and again probably will never see again there's some chances that I will see them again, but I I feel very exposed that way, and that kind of feeling of exposure leads me back to a place, you know, when I was uh, going through um, the court system from being sexually abused, you know, it it was a negative feeling, and and now I can switch it around to be a positive thing, right, that I'm actually having an impact on someone's life, and, you know, I may feel like trash for five minutes, but maybe they won't have to feel like trash for the next 24 hours, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a big benefit to... That. i i mean i got sewered into speaking i think because i was four days sober in a treatment center and these guys said oh we're going to a, a booth house which was just outside of london back it was run by salvation army it was a youth detention center and we were rolling in the driveway and they said you're speaking tonight Polly and i was still shaking like i was still like going through dts and i haven't stopped i haven't shut up since so <laughs> it's, uh, it's about five years ago now and, and i just keep going with it which i just do it for i, I really look at other people and hope that they can identify with it, ultimately. I don't want anyone to compare their lives to mine because no one has the exact same life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I surely want it to be like an identifiable thing. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, you know, like, you've lost someone to suicide, so have I. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that either uncomfortably or comfortably, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. we can get through that stuff and I think that's how we build connections, mm-hmm. again, for sure. I don't mm-hmm. mind telling my story at all. It sucks, but it is what it <laughs> is, right? I'm helping people, so. Lots of things. Me not winning the lottery—that sucks too. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I can't do anything about it. Right. Yeah. So, right. Build connections, right? Yeah. yeah. Go to calculus class. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Inside, joke.
3: inside joke. <laughs> Um I think that uh, telling telling my story at first, it was really difficult. Um, I did it a, a few years ago now, but the more, same with Polly. I mean, the more that you talk about it, it's really interesting what happens because at first you think that you're such a mess inside and you think no one else is capable of feeling the way that you're feeling but as soon as you vocalize that it kinda like it's a release in a sense and then it becomes easier the next time becomes easier and more and it becomes easier and easier as you go along and then it's just something that you can openly talk about and and like Paulie said it's not even about me anymore it's about hey I can say this and then that person feels comfortable talking to me about what they're going through that might be really difficult at that moment in time so we both understand how hard it is to talk about the first time but the more and more you do talk about that which is why conversations are so important um, it just becomes just like an everyday topic right and and that's what it kind of needs to become so that you don't internalize it so much and beat yourself up over and over again about what you're experiencing mm-hmm. uh, and I think Pauly nailed it on the head like yeah you feel vulnerable but the more that we make ourselves feel vulnerable it's okay for the other people to feel vulnerable. Right. it's it's a sign of trust really if we're if we're telling you this stuff we could we we obviously trust you to uh, you know, with our story, with our emotions, with our feelings, to just come forward and, and, and be gentle with us, I guess, in the yeah. sense, right? Um, and, and hopefully that allows you the, tr- the same trust in return, and you trust us, and you'll open up to us, and, and we're not going to hurt you. We're here to help. Mm-hmm. So.
4: Okay. And you talked about your your experiences on TV, right? With yeah. at the Bachelorette, yeah. and and even and Scott's been on TV with with the body, bodybuilding and battle. Dome. Yeah. And I was just curious whether that public persona, how that affected um, how easy or difficult it is for you to share your your personal story
3: well, in all honesty um, there was and I talk about this on on the story that I'll be sharing uh, on on my page actually um, there's no survival guide to reality TV and I was kind of naive in, in a little bit of a sense. Like, I thought that people that didn't watch the show wouldn't know about it, and I didn't. I didn't really think it through. But as soon as they post your picture on their ABC website, Entertainment Tonight gets it, and Jimmy Kimmel's talking about it. And all of a sudden, you're like, "Holy!" You know, I won't say it, but you know what I'm thinking. And and it's just like, okay, everybody all of a sudden is is messaging you, and, and it's it's very overwhelming. And uh, and I honestly wasn't ready for it, especially someone that. To be completely honest, through that whole process, I hid the fact that I had anxiety disorder. I was on an anti-anxiety medication at the time, and I didn't tell them about it. They found out about it when I got there, um, but I didn't tell them I had seen a therapist before. And, and the reason was was because they specifically ask you in the document, "Have you seen a therapist before? Are you on any medication?" And, and other than for like you know for your for your mental health, basically. And I kind of went through that process, and I, I had talked to some of the people that were casting, and they said, You know, if I were you, I would just, you know, put on what, put, say whatever you need to say to kind of get on the show if that's what you want. So I lied about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, can, and I continued to, I felt like I was just hiding from what, what was really going on. So to expose yourself and go on this ridiculous te- no it's not ridiculous for some people but there there are some ridiculous <laughs> things that happen right and uh and expose yourself to that and uh, and to the world and kind of tr- still trying to wear that mask it, it was it was the ultimate end for me of being of hiding really like at the end of it i just said you know what I, I need to not hide anymore i need to be of value and just face face the facts this is what i deal with this is who i was Um, And I need to talk about it because um, I really do feel like a lot of people on that show lie on that application. I feel there's a lot more people on medication that don't talk about it. I think this needs to be discussed because you go way up. You're just an ordinary person, right? It's not like you've been grooming as an actor to be in a big movie and you've had all these roles leading up to it. All of a sudden, you're just in the news, in the media, and then back down again like that. And there's no way to really... To understand it without going through it, but it was a hell of a roller coaster ride, and there was times when I wanted attention and all the wrong for all the wrong reasons because I was just used to it at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And you really have to step back and say, "Geez, you know, this." There's a lot of elements of this that can be really unhealthy and unstable. Um, and, and it was at that point that I started working to get off my medication. And, and as soon as I was in a good place, I actually started telling that story. And um, it's, it's it's a unique experience in itself being on TV and being in the media um, especially when you're not being the true version of yourself and that's that's the struggle I mean I was always wearing a mask and and you always wonder what's going to happen when you take that mask off and, and if, if people are going to respect you or if people are going to love you the same way um, but it's a part of my life it's who I am and, and I stopped hiding from it and running from it and just faced it so
4: yeah did that question on the application almost seem to Encourage you to hide, hide your. Um...
3: I would say it was a very in-your-face way of um, asking if you were of sound mind to be on the show, right? And because... how you chose to answer that was going to dictate whether or not you were accepted, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I felt. I don't know if that's necessarily true because in brackets it says this does not necessarily mean you won't be on the show. <laughs> but as soon as you read that, you're like, okay, well, obviously you're thinking yeah. now that's in my head that I might not be on the show. How I answer this, so. Yeah. Yeah, so I lied. Um, I lied, and then I came clean about it after the show, and I'll probably never be picked to be on any of their spinoff shows for that reason, but I'm okay with that. I think that doing this is, is making more of a difference. So,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder, too, so you guys speak a lot about how you're sort of um, in the spotlight, and it can be really vulnerable and hard sometimes. So what are some things you do to take care of yourself after the fact or beforehand?
3: Okay. Um, A lot of the stuff we actually talk about on the podcast, we do a lot of um, breathing is huge. So breathing exercises and mindfulness. So um, anytime that you catch yourself sort of stuck in your head, just remember to focus on your breathing and just look around. Be present. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you feeling? Um, And and that's that's huge for me. I mean, just kind of being in the moment and, and remembering that this voice in your head, everybody has one but it's just it's conditioned from childhood to keep you safe you don't necessarily need it anymore um, and uh... i think that the the meditation is huge we do a relaxation cd that we, we really focus on which is sort of it has a breathing element it has a body tension release element it also has a visualization element. Um, so that's huge and then other than that it's just talking about things that we get stuck on such as anger or um, scary thoughts and uh obsessive thinking things like that and we talk about some some techniques that might help you get through that but ultimately I think the main thing is to try to get out of your head and get into the present moment I think that's sort of
2: the key here and I think that's what people are starting to realize what do you think For me, I struggle um, being, and I I don't even like saying it, I struggle being a a public figure. I struggle with uh, the fact that people know me and I don't know them. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? And that if I've, you know, I've spoken for like almost 300,000 people in the last you know 5 years and there's a lot of people that know me that I don't know them and I really like having connections with people and I I don't think I could ever be on the bachelorette first
4: <laughs> <laughs>
2: they would never pick me because yeah. I would have been the guy would have been like yeah you should see the drug time <laughs> you know and they definitely wouldn't have picked me for that and I struggle with that cuz I um I don't want to be famous or i don't want to have fame because of the you know crappy situations in my life i don't even want to be famous for what i do do you know what i mean i just think that every person that knows five people at least you know one in five we all know five people so we should just be good people who if you're if you're able to talk about your story and and even listen to someone else's story then i don't think that that's a superpower do you know what I mean? I think that's just being a good human, like a good Canadian human, and that's a struggle. That's a barrier we all have to get through, right? But I, I definitely struggle with that because I think people put pressure on me. They put me up on this big pedestal and I still make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I still, you know, deal with things in a, you know, unhealthy way sometimes. I think for, when it comes to the, to the CBT stuff that we've done, like I've learned, That if I'm really struggling, I need to go for a walk, or I need to play my guitar, or I need to color, and like, thank God I have those adult coloring books, because they're perfect, (laughs) right? They're exactly what I want to express, Mm -hmm. that I don't have to do that verbally, and I can do that uh, kind of through my own creative mind, and i found definitely techniques that work, and definitely techniques that don't work, but when it comes to just kind of relaxing and not, I just don't try to be a public person, right? I Mm -hmm. keep a lot of things close to my chest that are in my private life, and I think that's healthy for me. You know, it's a healthy boundary for me. There's a lot of people that know a lot about me and there's Mm a, and that can be scary. Mm -hmm. That can be super scary. I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to disappoint anyone. And I, you know, I feel like I have let people down by being open. My family, we came from a very conservative house and we don't talk about mental illness and we don't talk about suicide. And I must have been adopted because I do <laughs> and, you know, I do talk about this yeah. stuff, so uh, we've I've stopped a relationship with my family because they wanted me to stop talking about this, and I think that this is more important having a brother Sean, who I can talk about this mm-hmm. than having a brother Sean that I can't talk about it with mm-hmm. so that's uh yeah, still a struggle. I'm just human though mm-hmm. we're all just yeah. human. Yeah,
3: absolutely. and I think that everybody ultimately like what works for Polly might not work for me, and what yeah. works for me might not work for Polly, mm-hmm. but I think as long as we're providing, and as long as anyone's providing lots and lots of tools that could help mm-hmm. um, people will find their way and, and everybody's path is different and whether you've been on and, and and being open and being having that little 15 minutes of fame I, I just want people to understand that it's not all it's cracked up to be and um, if I could go back in time and work on myself the way I have the last couple of years and start building the relationships that I've made I would pick that over being you know, a little bit of fame and being on TV and all the fake relationships any day of the week. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people facing ch- or chasing fame on, on YouTube and social media now because it's so much more easily accessible or, or the opportunity seems that way. Um, I think that you still have to really focus on the real connections, like the people that are physically in the room, um, because at the end of the day, that's really what matters, and that's how we're, we're, we're human. We're supposed to feel and we're supposed to show love in person. It's not as much as... I love the social media aspect for what we do, and I love being able to reach people and help from a distance. I would I would still rather bring every one of them here and sit, sit them down and have coffee with them. That would be the ultimate goal, right? But yeah, so.
1: Another question I have too, so you kind of spoke about how, the importance of relationships, but what would you guys say to someone who maybe doesn't have a supportive family or um, is struggling to find that supportive network?
2: Paul, you you want to take this one, eh? Yeah, I think for sure you just can't give up. Like, you need to reach out for the people. And I think for me, I didn't know who's going to be like my people, you know? I never had, well, they're going to look like this. They're going to act like this. They're going to be this ethnicity. They're going to, you know, do all this. I think that they've almost found me in in a sense that, uh, you know, it's probably mutual, probably pretty mutual, like, interests and stuff like that. But I've definitely realized that. Uh, and I would say this, I'd said it on the podcast and you guys like chirped me for <laughs> saying all these things, right? We love it though. Yeah. We love it. Yeah. But I'd rather have four, four quarters than a hundred pennies. I'd rather have like four people in my life that I can call at three in the morning than a hundred people who just say, yeah, call me at three in the morning and I call them and they don't answer. Mm-hmm. I'd rather have four people in my life that can do that. And I think that we all have those four people or we all have at least someone, right? There's a lot of people that have no one and, um, if we just reach out, I think we have to, we have to push through that boundary or push through that kind of barrier that uh, no one's going to listen. Well, it's like ultimately someone will listen. And I think that's what we do with the podcast. We're like, we'll listen. Yeah. You know, if you feel like you have absolutely no one, you can't say that anymore. Cause yeah. Because you, you have us. Right. You know, sure. like mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, that's a, we need to get into more of just saying that to our friends. You got me. No matter what, if you think you have no one, you're lying to yourself. Like you have me, I'll do anything mm-hmm. for you, you know. Mm-hmm. Like check in with our friends about our mental health, right? Like hey, you have, like you asked me today, how you doing, buddy? And we I'm can. struggling, you know. I'm yeah. I'm really struggling, and I just knew what he meant, right? And we're just opening up a dialogue that we kind of both get it, yeah. you know. And it's just like okay, well he, you know, he's checking in with me. Yeah. And I think we all need that, you know. He's not a therapist. <laughs> I don't want his therapy, you know. Like I, I don't want his therapy, but I I think that like. If we can have these people that we can check in with, if we have one or two or three or four of those people, we're, we're going to be good. We're going to be okay. We're not going to feel so alone. Yeah. Yeah. For me, that's what it is. And, and this is a prime example because Paulie, Paulie and I
3: communicate through um, Facebook right now, right? Yeah. Um, and for me to see him and actually say, like, how you doing, buddy? how much more effective is that than the, right. than, than sending a message oh, 100%, right 100% yeah. yeah so when you can see that's the thing is that this this in person connection just feels so much better and you can you can see how authentic it is whereas when you're going back and forth through messenger or text or social media there's so many different ways to misinterpret what people are saying right and it's just this is what we're talking about about like it, it's great for certain things and to open the conversation but just remember ultimately this is always better the, the, and when paulie says you know, four or four quarters over a hundred pennies. It's the same thing for social media. When you're looking at your followers and it's a number tally, just remember, like how many of those numbers do you really have this with? And that's that's something that's, that's important. And I think that by telling your story and by being vulnerable, it's kind of like raise your, your freak flag high, you know? I mean, before I remember when I was wearing my mask and I was kind of hiding a lot of my things, I was chasing after people and chasing after relationships. As soon as you just sit back, and say, look, this is who I am. Other people come out of the woodwork, and then they start to come to you. So it's no longer trying to find the right people; they'll find you as long as you're open and honest and authentic. And I think that's the whole thing about transparency and this whole movement. It's like an authentic siege on the highlight reels, right? And that's kind of what uh, what I like to think of the podcast as is this. There's all these highlight reels with people living these perfect lives that you see on social media. Well, what are the authentic siege It's kind of calling BS on that, right? Mm-hmm. Your life isn't perfect. No one's is. No one's is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the just be are honest.
2: are Tide Pods. Right?
4: Yeah. yeah. You know, no one's
2: life <laughs> yeah. is perfect. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Let's mm-hmm. have like a challenge where we talk about our mental health. That would yeah, yeah, be a, no, exactly. a great idea. Yeah. Exactly. I can't believe that.
4: Pods. I know. <laughs> so, Yeah
1: that's fantastic yeah well on that note as well obviously it's hard to escape social media like everything is integrated into that so do you guys have any tips or advice um, about how to navigate social media or use it um, in the most healthy way or
3: yeah, yeah. I think that uh, when it comes to social media just remember that because it's so easy for people to follow you now and, and kind of when, when we were younger if you were bullied at school You know, you didn't want to go to school, but you could always go home and and they couldn't reach you there. Now it's like they have another tool to, to be able to access that. I think it's just important. Same thing, like, don't let your mind in a situation take you out of what's in front of you. If there's loving people right in front of you, it's kind of that thing where we have to reverse the way we think. A lot of the time, if there's nine people giving you a compliment and one person insults you, you're not remembering the nine compliments. You're remembering the person that insults you, right? And that's something we have to change. We have to start learning to forget about the the insult to forget about the bullying and really focus and be grateful for the people that are that are showing us that they love and they care and it's an easy thing to get trapped in and focus on the negative um, and we talk about that a lot but to really be able to reverse it and just say okay why am i thinking about this this person obviously doesn't care about me why don't I why don't I give my attention and stop giving attention to someone that's being you know a a bully or whatever and start giving my attention to the people that are really showing me that they love and they care I'll be grateful for that and that's kind of I think the mindset we have to really work on changing and unfortunately it's human nature I mean we all do it but it's just it's learning to 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 really just release the negativity and focus in on the positivity I yeah. think and, and, and learn it it takes time it takes a lot of
2: practice but if you start you won't stop it's like opening Pandora's box I think when it comes to social media it's a blessing and a curse right I think sure you know there's people that post about their chicken dinner yeah. You know, and like there's a lot of people that don't like chicken. Yeah. Right? Or vegans that that don't want to do that. I think we've become offended by, you know, how many people we have a tool to say, yeah, I love that or I hate that or I'm going to laugh at that. And it's all about our own perception. I heard something yesterday about social media and someone said, how many, how big of a following does one in five have? And I said, oh, like about, in all our social media platforms, probably 25,000, you know, uh, a, a reach of that. And this guy said, how many of those people do you know their birthday? Just off by heart, and it doesn't come up on Facebook. It's their birthday today. And it made me think, like, how many people do I know their birthday? Out of 25,000, less than a percent. You know, less than a percent. So, like, reality isn't on a screen. You know, it's not on how many likes you get. And that's what we're big on. We don't care how many likes we get. It's cool that we get likes, but it's more about the reach, right? Mm-hmm. It's how many people can we reach, whether there's a lot of people that are on Facebook that don't like anything ever. Yeah. You know, we can't look at them as them being bad people towards us or that yeah. they hate us. Maybe they just don't want to touch the like button, <laughs> yeah. you know? That's me. For their own yeah. reason, right? Yeah. For their own, yeah. And I think that we don't, we shouldn't live our lives on likes and shares. And we should just live our life away from a screen sometimes, you know, yeah. that's not reality. We can all hide behind a screen. We can all put, you know, there's pictures that, I have great pictures that I can filter and make yeah. me look great. Yeah. I don't look like that all the time. <laughs> I promise you that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, just to, to touch on what
3: you were saying there with, um, with social media and everything going on, when, when we do our videos, as long as there's one person watching we always try to focus on that could be the one person sort of just secluding themselves in the dark, and as long as they have one tip or get one thing out of it, it's worth it, right? Like, that's a life. And, and people sort of look at the numbers and wanting to make big numbers, but if you start looking at the numbers as being an individual person, being I mean, like, that's one person that's watching that you could change their life. That's what matters. Yeah. And, and it's not about reaching the people that watch for three seconds and, like oh, I'm bored with this. It's the people that are really sitting back, potentially not saying anything, on the other side of the screen, that are that are absorbing the material, and that's that's what we really do it for. So,
4: as your social media network has has grown, do you find it being a difficult responsibility to be that support network for each each one of your yes. followers? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. I wasn't. Uh, yeah. I
3: have to be honest. I was not expecting um, it to grow as quickly as it has. I was not expecting to receive the messages that I've had. Some of them are hard. Some of them are really asking for um information that i don't know how i don't know the answer to like um i was for example i had a a a message about self-harming and, and things like that and i had to just direct if i don't know at least i know the resources and i try to direct them the best i can the problem that i didn't they didn't think about though is that you, you kind of started thinking it's going to be just london people and then canada and now you're talking to people in, you know, South Africa and the UK, and it's like, oh my, I have no idea what your your mental health support systems are even like. So you kind of do, you learn though. You do some research and you do your best. But you, you're, also, I'm also honest, and I say, look, I'm not from this part of the world. I, I, I can sort of give you what worked for me. Um, I can tell you the support systems here. I can give you a number that I've looked up on Google. But that's that's where I, you know that's the extent of my my knowledge and. Unfortunately, you might have to take some of this on yourself. I know that's hard with what you're facing right now But I can't do it from being this far away, right? I can't yeah, do it
2: for you I think the this, this struggle I have a, I agree with that for yeah. sure. There's people who have messaged me from all over and I'm like well, I just don't you know, we're I, doing a good job not swearing by the way Have you seen yeah, how yeah. he's yeah. <laughs> talking? right? That I've done a few long, times where I
3: had to pause close. and be like, okay, yeah, yeah.
2: Okay. Um, I what I really struggle with with that is people reaching out for help and I say you know here's a even in London you know um, you know people in dire need go to the hospital well, if you're not in immediate need they can't keep because they can't they're over capacity right or people saying I have to, I have to wait ten weeks for a, to see a counselor and in some cases people don't have ten weeks you know like and that's the thing that really hurts is that not that I want to save everyone's life I want to get them the help that they need as soon as possible because Without that, like time's critical. When you're, when you're really struggling, time is critical and I think resources are critical. And that's obviously something we gotta talk about with our government, that we get more than 7% of funding when it comes to healthcare, like addictions and mental health. That's what we get, 7%. And I think that, you know, I'm not taking anything away from any other disease, but I think we deserve a little bit more and um, there's a massive epidemic right now with, with addiction and mental health, right? And why don't we put more money into finding resources for that? Uh, you know, there's only 5,800 certified therapists in Canada, and the stat one of five. That means there's 8 million Canadians struggling with mental health, and there's 5,800 people to help them. Like, that's not enough. You know, it really isn't enough. When we look at northern communities where there's a community that has 5,000 people and one mental health worker, well, they're already isolated, so they're already struggling with that, you know, and, and the suicide rate. 50%, you know, and there's one mental health worker, we need to really, I think, you know, I get passionate about that stuff because I, I, you know, I talked to Justin Trudeau once and I think he was just a great, it was a good picture opportunity. I don't think he really listened to me, but I think that if we really, you know, got through to government and said we need some more money because people are dying and, and yeah. people's lives are valuable and I'm sick of going to funerals, you know, I'm ultimately sick of going to funerals because of stigma, because people don't get the help that they need in the time that they need. That's the thing that bugs me when I get messages, and it just breaks my heart to hear, oh, I have to wait 10 weeks, because I think in my head, I've been there, and I probably didn't have 10 weeks. Like, yeah. I, I got very lucky with the counselors that I've been able to reach out to, because I was able to see them right away, and, mm-hmm. no, maybe not right away, but I've had to wait some, to get into the last treatment center I was in, I had to wait three weeks, and I drank for two and a half of those weeks, mm-hmm. which probably wasn't the best thing to do, but it was keep, kept me alive for those, for those two, two and a half weeks. That's a struggle for me with social media and people reaching out. Yeah. It definitely has that influx being on like sex and suicide podcast because people, you know, they trust you now, you know, people trust you to talk, talk about your story because you're open to talk about your own story. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So it's been a
3: responsibility and I think that we've learned. I mean, just the same with Polly, but, um, on a smaller scale, I mean, everybody, we always want change coming from the government, but like we as individuals as well, I mean, there's mental health first aid courses we can take. Yeah there's safe talk courses, there's assist, there's, there's all these things that you can do to be prepared. And I almost think like that should be included in, in one whole first aid training. Um, we're not implementing enough mental health strategy um, in, in, the, in the everyday person because when those, when those therapists aren't available and when government isn't giving the funding, we should all be prepared to help one another and, and just know um, what to do and what not to do. And, and exactly, yeah. the simple things, right? I mean, and just be there for people really.
1: Um, so you guys mentioned a lot about wait times and sort of the stress that can put on people. Do you guys have any advice or tips or suggestions for people who are in that um, transition period?
2: I think for me, utilize community resources as much as possible is like the biggest thing. Uh, there's no shame in having the crisis number on speed dot. There's no shame in that, and I think that uh, when it comes to... For myself, I'm an alcoholic, and, and I know that there's 80 meetings a week in London, um, and it's not therapy, and it's not counseling, but at least there's someone willing to listen for sure there, and uh, even if I'm struggling and I don't want to leave my house, I have a phone book full of, you know, people that are willing to listen. It's just up to me to answer that, and uh, or to reach out, and I think it, during those waiting times, it's, it's tough. It's not easy. It's definitely, uh, we have to keep busy, but we have to keep busy in healthy ways, and um, I think reaching out to, to community resources while you're, you know, not just go, go for one counselor. Uh, if there is like community groups to, to you know, 12-step groups that you can go and talk to about whatever you're going through. And some 12-step groups don't talk about other mental health. And um, so be it, you know. I think that there's going to be people that are willing to listen to you in communities like London and I think surrounding areas too. Mm -hmm. Alcoholics Anonymous is everywhere, I know that, just for alcoholism, but I think we could, we could definitely start a program for mental health that way though and and have just a community, you know? How do we make that viral? I know, like Mm -hmm. like a support (laughs) support system, like AA, but for mental health
3: health kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah, that would be phenomenal. Something where there's always meetings and there's always, uh, you know, different solutions being talked about, but I think we're always here, you can always message yeah. us. I mean, we, we don't have all the answers, but we'll be your friend, we'll talk, we'll, we'll share, we'll try to relate. Um, the other thing was, uh, Paulie was talking about um, wait times for therapists. I mean, there is some responsibility, and I know that's tough to hear when you're going through mental health struggles, um, but you're not always gonna get the person that's right for you. Like, Paulie, how many therapists did you go through? 67 to it. Right, From so, the and, and when you call, um, the crisis line or the support line for CMHA's lines, any of those, it's just a person on the other end of that line too. So like, if you're not getting the advice that you need, don't be afraid to call back. Shifts change. It might just be that one person that clicks mm-hmm. for you, but there is going to take some responsibility to continue to call or to make the calls until you get what you need. And I think that's important not just for the person suffering from or struggling from mental illness or, or whatever it may be that they're struggling from, but for the support people. I mean, I've had... Uh, I've had mothers reach out that don't know how to take care of their teenagers that are kind of rebelling, and, and they're worried, and, and they've said they've, they've attempted to take their own life. So, well, you know, you're allowed to call these numbers, too, to get advice. I mean, there's there's not just advice for the individual. There's advice for people supporting the individual, it's really important that you know what you're doing, um, or at least have some guidance, right? I mean, you don't want to you don't wanna lash out and, and completely throw the, the kid out of the house. I mean, that's probably not the right answer, so... Um, get the right advice and, and don't give up until you do I think and, and just be persistent and I know that sucks when you don't want to do anything yeah. right you just want to sit back and have the answer provided for you but um, just don't give up and, and keep keep moving forward there, there's good people that are, are actually um, able to help
2: and that want to help so I think I, I learned a good thing from Sean McCann like I, I'm pretty good friends with Sean now He's sang a great big and we spoke together a little bit and, he always says, you gotta wake up before you go to work, right? And you can't, uh, you can't start working on this stuff until you're self-aware. And I think, like Sean says, it's a responsibility to be a little bit self-aware. You know, I'm struggling. That's being self-aware, you know? And in saying that, you're also allowed to say, I need help. And there's no shame in that. And you're not a bad person for, or a weak person for saying, I need help. I think in every single person's life, whether we chronically live with mental illness or not, we all struggle with something, you know? We all didn't come out of the womb knowing how to tie our shoes or to ride a bike. You know, we needed help with that. And what's the, what's the problem with talking about or getting help from someone else about your mental health? Right? You got someone to help you tie your shoes, and you're not tripping. So I think that that's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: I just wanted to ask you about hockey because oh, did we mention that Paulie's a hockey coach? I don't know if we did, but Paulie's <laughs> a hockey coach. He coaches youth hockey. Yeah. And um. Just thinking about uh, pro hockey leagues, that their substance abuse policies—they um, seem similar to the the bachelorette questionnaire that you mentioned. How it's sort of like screening you, and um, more more so about punishing people rather than identifying people and providing supports for them. Uh, how do you think that can be improved?
2: Well, I think we, again we gotta take these people off the pedestal and and realize that they've all started out skating on a rink somewhere, right? And they're all, just because they're great at hockey and they might be an elite uh, uh, athlete, that they might be a crappy cook, you know, they might not be great at being a cook, but they're a great hockey player and we put them up on this big pedestal because they're this great hockey player and uh, we don't, I I think for me personally being in uh, the sport for, you know, 30 years, We don't want to talk about it because then that's a, you know, for me, I would have never told my hockey coach that I was struggling with depression or anxiety because in my head, he wouldn't play me Mm -hmm. and I was there to play. And so I would not talk to my, there's no way that I would ever talk to my hockey coach about being anxious or depressed. And I think even the team that I coach, I, I just try to make, make sure that they know that they can come to me. There's, I've never had a kid in the last six years of coaching I've never had a kid come to me and talk to me about it. And they know what I do. They know that I go around and I speak about this, and I've never had a kid come up to me, and I understand why. Yeah, I get it. And not that I'm going to take away their ice time. They, they're they're in fear that I'm going to take away their ice time, and I never would. I would, personally, if I had a kid come up to me and say, hey, I'm really struggling with my anxiety, I'd say, let's get you some help. You know, and maybe you shouldn't play tonight, because I want someone... and. I just saw something yesterday that, that mental toughness has nothing to do with mental illness, you know. And uh, mental toughness in the game of hockey is, uh, you know, staying focused. And if you can't because you're struggling with a mental illness, it doesn't make you any less than a hockey player, you know. Like you're just a human being who is great at what he does, and it has nothing to do with not being mentally tough. Uh, it has nothing to do with being weak, you know. It's just that some people, one in five Canadians, are. Uh, affected by this and no one's immune from it no one's discriminated not even hockey players not even Wayne Gretzky you know I bet Wayne Gretzky was pretty nervous he was 17 years <laughs> old playing in the NHL you know yeah. but he wouldn't talk about it or is Wayne Gretzky ever going to talk about being nervous no but I bet he was he was 17 playing against Gordy Howe like I bet he was very nervous and I think if we again normalize the conversation about it and we can you know maybe not have that kid have to not talk to his hockey coach maybe if we brought in a you know a buffer of um, you know a mental health coach and then just someone that you can he doesn't even have to talk to, to the head coach or to the managerial staff But just so someone can say you know I get really anxious seeing people with my jersey in the stands, you know, that was a big thing, right? That's gonna uh, that be very nerve-wracking when you're skating around a warm-up and you see all these You know jerseys in the stands and they have your last name on them That can be a lot of pressure on you and you put that pressure on yourself and that's very nerve-wracking, but uh, you, as an athlete, you would never tell anyone that. And I think that if we can have people maybe even involved in the sport, and that's what we can do after the NHL is have these, these guys who have dealt with that stuff come back to local teams and say, you can come and talk to me anytime. I'm not even going to talk to your hockey coach, but just make sure that I get it. You know, I can identify with that, and I can identify with you know being an athlete and trying to keep that focus and trying to keep that competitive edge, right, and that mental toughness. You know, it has nothing to do with mental illness, yeah. ultimately. And
4: Theo Fleury is one of those former players that you've worked yeah. with, too. Right? Yeah, Theo
2: really helped me disclose my story for the very first time. And it was tough, and I love Theo to, to death for it, and I'm grateful for it. Uh, we don't have the relationship that we used to have, but I think he was that key, you know, that combination to the lock that led me to be able to tell my friends, you know, and say, you know, hockey hockey didn't do this to me. It was a, a really crappy representative of hockey that molested me, and uh like i can't take that out on the sport you know hockey's never done anything bad to me you know even as many fights as i've been in i've engaged in every single one of those fights you know and all 12 goals i scored in four years like i'll take credit for all those 12 goals like i really will and because i worked hard to get there and i you know i wasn't the best hockey player but i could fight and that's what they needed and i was a protector and an enforcer and uh, I thought that I, you know, going through sexual abuse in hockey was a really tough thing because uh again for a long time I thought that hockey did that to me and I mean I talked about it on the podcast like how hard was that for me to get back to a rink like I would go to a parking lot and have an anxiety attack and then I would make it inside the lobby and I'd have an anxiety attack and then I watched one period and I had an anxiety attack but I I'm Irish and I'm stubborn and I love hockey and I wasn't going to let that guy rent space in my head for free for the rest of my life and I think that the biggest thing and I'm very grateful, I think it's the universe seeing how hard I worked. My first year that I coached, I won a national championship coaching and I nice. think that that was the universe saying, here's your reward for you know, working your butt off. Do you think there's still that suck it up mentality oh. in, in, yeah, in, ath- in the athletic world? Yeah, for sure, there definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, because it's like If you're not a peak performance, then I don't want you here. There's 700 people in the whole world that play in the NHL. There's, what, 4 billion people? There's always someone else that's willing to play that hard or work that hard. And if you can't because you're anxious, then there's someone else that will. We won't even talk about their anxiety, really, and they're going to be next in line. We don't talk, we don't even think about, there's no exit strategy for professional athletes, right? We look at that at football. These guys dealing with concussions and having nowhere to go. The they dinner. just bask their head for 10 years so that you can make a bazillion dollars and you're not going to, you know, help them out with that. I think it really comes down to workplace injuries. You know, that's their workplace, the ice or the field or the court. That's their workplace and we have to look out, you know, RBC Bank, they look out for their employees after they're done, right? The military, they look out for their uh, employees after they're done with a pension, right? And, you know, why don't professional athletes, as soon as you're done, you're done. You clean out your locker and you go home and... Then, then what, you know, and I think we need to, to give, give them a job, maybe, you know, of, of going back to even just professional teams or semi-pro teams and saying, you can talk to me, you know, about your stuff.
4: Yeah, there's a really good interview on CBC with Mike Babcock, and he talks yeah. about this, and where he says how, like, af- especially hockey players, they'll play. If, even if their leg is hanging off, they want to play, but no one's going to say, mentally, I'm not ready, right. I can't do this.
2: Oh. It's true. It's the, like he said. Like it's the suck it up attitude. i never. I saw that interview, and the guy asked if, if he's ever had anyone in Game Seven of the playoffs come up and tell them that they're anxious. And Mike Babcock said, "Not a player in the world would say that for the circumstance that they're in. No one in Game Seven, the Stanley Cup playoffs, is ever going to tell anyone that they're anxious. You know, yeah. they've lived their whole lives for that moment. They're not going to, you know, set them up to to not even have a chance at that. I get that for sure. It's we gotta again, like, take these athletes off a pedestal and realize that they're human. They're great athletes, they're great athletes, but they're human beings. They use the same color toilet that I use, right? <laughs> so I, I think they're no different. No one's any different or any worse or any better. We're all just humans, and we all have beating heart.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the more athletes that op- have opened up about it afterwards have really helped. Um, open the conversation too, like Theo Fleury, yeah. Rich Clune, yeah. um, Corey Hirsch. Yeah. Uh, he, they've published a lot of really open, revealing articles on Players Tribune about their struggles. Yeah.
2: I know for a few athletes like Cluner, he um, he really struggled after he came out with it, going going into the dressing room. You know, because now his coach knew. You know, now everyone knew that he struggled with alcohol and you know, had been in recovery for four years and didn't tell anyone. Now he goes into a dressing room and everyone in the whole world knows. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know for a fact that he's really struggled with that. Uh, and Babcock talks to him a lot about, you know, um, just be you, just be Rich Clune, the hockey player, you know. and People are going to know Rich Clune, the hockey player, is an alcoholic and they're not going to buy him a drink after. And if, uh, if everyone knows that, then you don't have to worry about hiding that because everyone knows it. So I know that, that, that that's happened for sure. Rich is a good guy. He's a great hockey player. He's a great guy. He's a great human being. For for when it comes to recovery and that, that stuff. Theo and Sheldon. There's lots of athletes that have gone through things that we don't know about. And we yeah. don't know about yet, right? So.
4: And just the few that do that that share their story makes them more human and yeah. l- takes them off of that pedestal yeah. that you mentioned.
1: Mm-hmm. So what's next for you guys?
3: Um, well I think we're going to continue. You've got a few podcasts left um, to finish our program. It got really uh, we just got really tied up as soon as September hit. Polly was coaching and, and games were always on the weekends. Um, Scott got busy. I was in school until the strike hit so um, it was really tough for us to get together but now we're kind of collectively coming back and we'll finish the, the 15-meet program we started and from then on I, I'd like to do the Soul Fire Sundays that we've started mm-hmm. together and keep it open so that if Polly can't make it that night, maybe Scott and I will meet or we'll get in other guests that maybe want to share their story or maybe they want to um, just maybe mental health professionals that want to come on and, and talk about a few things or maybe there's some things that they'd like to see us doing better, mm-hmm. right? We're open to being, we're coachable. We don't have all the answers. We're always trying to figure it out as we go. And uh, that's why I love this thing is that we learn a lot by doing it too. We learn just as much as we talk about, so... Uh, moving forward, it will always be a platform that's open to everyone. Even if we're not doing the podcast, the page will still be functioning. Eventually, we'll grow it into a website, um, and, and we'll we'll just keep going with this thing and and always be there. I
2: don't I don't plan on stopping. It's a part of me now. Yeah, I don't plan on stopping either. I think the most consistent thing is you're going to see rawness, you're going to see realness, and you're going to see uncensored hooligans I think really <laughs> cause I'm not going to stop anytime soon and I think that that's how we you know yeah. if we can get people smiling we're all smiling right now right yeah. and, and we if we can keep people smiling that you know releases some dopamine we can be happy for a second yeah you know and that's the ultimate for people that are struggling right we need to figure out how to get some more dopamine in our brains and right. if we can talk about that and have some laughs with you know I love these guys I think a year ago I didn't know them that's true and now I love them you know like yeah. and how cool is that how yeah. if you're just patient and you have consistent action that your life can change and, and you can have amazing people in your lives and I'm yeah who this guy's the limit really with with it because it's already opened up so much for for both of us you know? yeah and literally end together absolutely. it's opened up a lot for us so.
3: and I think that uh, I, I think it's important just for anyone that wants to um, there's a little bit of a, a fear when you get into uh, you know, mental health, especially when I went so bold with suicide right there. And even sex as well. I mean, you you get into a little bit of a what will people think and and, and you, you sort of have to face that fear of what people are going to think and hope that the good people will see through the message and not judge it right away. Um, but I think that just by starting this and having the, having the ambition, not knowing where it will go and just, just going with it, you, you kind of learn as you go. And, and I think a lot of people now, maybe whether you're fearful of, of venturing down the mental health path because there's still some stigma there. or You don't know that you have all the answers. Just start. Just start implementing some of your ideas because you don't know whose life you're going to change or, or that one person that's going to come into your life that, that that affects you in a way that you've never been affected before. And uh, I think that if you have an idea, don't let fear stop you. It's, if you're if you're fearful of it, you're probably onto something, and you just that's something that you should explore.
0: Great. All right. Thank you. Okay,
2: thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us, guys.
0: After a six-month hiatus, Sean, Polly, and Scott were back at it recently with a podcast to address the suicides of Western University students that happened during Reading Week this past month. Now, they're gearing up for their newest season of Sex and Suicide, so follow their Facebook page to stay in the loop. And while you're at it, follow us, Mind Your Mind, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to see what we're up to, including our upcoming Canada-wide project.